Wisdom is the opposite of foolishness. It is the application of the Word of God upon every situation and circumstance of life, comprehensively and without apology. Saul was not a wise man, but rather he was foolish. As a result of his folly was his doom. This is the 29th sermon in the series, Dynasty, Lordship and Authority, an exposition on the first book of Samuel. Our old covenant reading coming from the first book of Samuel, Samuel and chapter 14, Samuel and chapter 14, the first book, beginning in verse 24 to the end of the chapter, verse 52. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. By inspiration of God, the prophet writes, And the men of Israel were distressed that day, for Saul had adjured the people, saying, Cursed be the man that eateth any food until evening, that I may be avenged on mine enemies. So none of the people tasted any food. And all they of the land came to a wood, and there was honey upon the ground. When the people were coming to the wood, behold, the honey dropped, but no man put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan heard not when his father charged the people with the oath. Wherefore, he put forth the end of the rod that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes were enlightened. Then answered one of the people and said, Thy father straightly charged the people with an oath saying, Cursed be the man that eateth any food this day. And the people were faint. Then said Jonathan, My father had troubled the land. See, I pray you, how mine eyes have been enlightened because I tasted a little of this honey. How much more, if happily the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies which they found, for they had there not been now a much greater slaughter among the Philistines. And they smote the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon, and the people were very faint. And the people flew upon the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slew them on the ground, and the people did eat them with the blood. Then they told Saul, saying, Behold, the people sin against the Lord in that they eat with the blood. And he said, Ye have transgressed. Roll a great stone unto me this day. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people, and say unto them, Bring me hither every man his ox and every man his sheep, and slay them here and eat. And sin not against the Lord in eating with the blood. And all the people brought every man his ox with him that night and slew them there. And Saul built an altar unto the Lord. The same was the first altar that he built unto the Lord. And Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and spoil them until the morning light. And let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatsoever seemeth good unto thee. Then said the priest, Let us draw near hither unto God. And Saul asked counsel of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Wilt thou deliver them into the hand of Israel? But he answered him not that day. And Saul said, Draw ye near hither, all the chief of the people, and know and see wherein this sin hath been this day. For as the Lord liveth which saveth Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people that answered him. Then said he unto all Israel, Be ye on one side, and I on Jonathan my son, and I will be on the other side. And the people said unto Saul, Do what seemeth good unto thee. Therefore Saul said unto the Lord God of Israel, Give a perfect lot. And Saul and Jonathan were taken, but the people escaped. And Saul said, Cast lots between me and Jonathan, my son. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what thou hast done. And Jonathan told him and said, 
I did but taste a little honey with the end of the rod that was in mine hand, and lo, I must die? And Saul answered, God do so, and more also, for thou shalt surely die, Jonathan. And the people said unto Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who hath wrought this great salvation in Israel? God forbid! As the Lord liveth, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he hath wrought with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, that he died not. Then Saul went up from following the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their place. So Saul took the kingdom over Israel, and fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, and against the children of Ammon, and against Edom, and against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines, and whithersoever he turned himself, he vexed them. And he gathered an host, and smote the Amalekites, and delivered Israel out of the hands of them that spoiled them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, and Ishui, and Melchishua, and the names of his two daughters were these, the name of the firstborn, Merib, and the name of the younger, Michal. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahatnoim, the daughter of Ahamaz, and the name of the captain of his host was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. And Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. And there was sore war against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man, or any valiant man, he took him unto him. James lectures us by the word of the Lord on wisdom in James in chapter 3, beginning in verse 13 through verse 17. By the same spirit, the apostle says this, Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not, and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Thus far is the reading of God's most holy and errant and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away. But God's word stands secure. It does stand the test of time and it is there for our encouragement and our admonition. Now with Saul's power as king advanced, so did his folly. As his kingly power advanced, so did his folly. Wisdom is the crown of a righteous man and it is especially important when that man has the reins of power. So we look for a man with wisdom who we will charge with the reins of power. Saul, however, in this situation, having the reins of power, yet he was not a righteous man. He did, however, pretend to be righteous. In fact, as we keep reading about Saul, he knew all the right things to say. He knew all the right things to do. Let's call upon the priest. Let's call upon God. Let's make an altar here. Let's make an altar there. He knew all the right things to say, and yet it was only pretending. He was not a righteous man. Not only was he not a righteous man, he was void of any practical wisdom as a result of being void of the grace of God and the operation of the Spirit of God. And there is a very important principle to be observed here. Wisdom comes, wisdom comes as a result of God's grace. 
And therefore it is obvious that Saul was void of God's grace. James explains, he says in chapter 1 of James, verse 5, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that give it to all men liberally, and umbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But Saul's problem was that he was never ever asking for wisdom. He didn't ask God for wisdom to rule. Unlike Solomon, David's son, who confessed that that he had not the wisdom necessary to lead the nation of Israel. He was but a child, and he knew that he was but a child. He knew that the wisdom had to come from God. He had confessed that he had not the wisdom necessary to lead the people of God. Saul, however, on the other hand, thought that he probably naturally had whatever it took to do the job of a king, maybe by his own power, by his own intellect, maybe because he was ordained by the people, called of the people, in spite of what Samuel said, that he would be a wicked king. He never really asked for help. And that was his foolish flaw. It seemed that his outward religiosity in calling upon God in this instance, in that instance, or inquiring of the high priest, was only a pretext to gain honor and support from the people. You see, the people needed to see the man as a holy man. They would not follow a a, a reprobate sinner. He had to pretend that he was a holy man so that they would still follow him, so that he could still maintain his position as king. That is the only reason why he would continue to be this, this man of charade. Yet, he was a proud, self serving man, and his actions proved as much. Note what James says Who is a wise man? Who is endured with knowledge and wisdom among you? He should show it out of a good conduct and his works should be done with the meekness of God's wisdom. That was not Saul's character. So God is saying through James that if there is a wise man among the people, it will be evident by his conduct and by his humility before God. It's not something that someone can say, well, you know, my religion is very personal. No, if it's true religion, it's very conspicuous. It's out there in the open for everyone to see and say, there is a man of God. There is a child of the Lord. But this was not the case with Saul. Saul's actions, although outwardly, although outwardly, he showed forth some sort of religiosity, they were entirely hypocritical. He had this outward show of godliness, but inwardly, he was entirely void of the true regenerating power of God's Spirit. All that Saul did was merely an open show without the real faith, humility, and wisdom to go along with it. In other words, he was an empty vessel. Nevertheless, despite being so empty and and despite being so hypocritical, he kept up this charade and the people bought into it for the most part until, and this is always what happens, until he was finally exposed for what he really was because he was finally exposed as a murderous reprobate void of conscience and remorse. Because your sin will find you out. And this is an important lesson In fact, it's a timeless lesson. Charlatans can only keep up their charade for so long until God finally exposes them for what they really are. Saul was a deceiver. His sin of pride and deception was his downfall. And sin, no matter what type it is, no matter what sin it is, can only be constrained for so long until God brings it to light. 
And that's what Saul failed to grasp. Saul failed to grasp that truth. He failed to understand that he could only keep his charade up for so long until God would finally bring him to his downfall. And the failure to understand how God works in the real world was his destruction. He thought that he can keep up the facade of his legitimacy as king indefinitely, but he was dead wrong. Consider the situation. And the men of Israel were distressed that day. For Saul had adjured the people, saying, Cursed be the man that eateth any food until evening, that I, that I, notice that I may be avenged on mine enemies. And of course, the people would then not eat. None of the people tasted any food. Now, just on a practical level, on a military level, as a military general, this was stupidity. This was sheer stupidity on Saul's part. It was a rash and a foolish decree. God had delivered Israel from the Philistines as a result of Jonathan's faith and courage, and yet Saul passes an executive order that makes no sense whatsoever on any plane other than to show his unbridled power. Because that's what men of reprobation do who are in office. They will just seek to show their power by some foolish dictate, some foolish mandate. And so he forbids his army from eating. But that's what was needed the most. An army who's fighting all day long, fighting the giants of the Philistines. Now remember, the Philistines were giants. The Israelis were not big men. They're fighting these giants all day long. The thing they needed most was nourishment. They needed to be nourished so that they might recuperate from the battle and be prepared for the next because this was an ongoing conflict. And yet Saul forbids them food under the penalty of death until he is avenged of his enemies. Notice, not God, but Saul. Cursed be the man that eateth any food until evening that I may be avenged on my enemies. Consider commentator Richard Phillips says this, He says, the king may have had a legitimate concern that the pursuit of the Philistines would lag if Israel's soldiers turned aside to loot the enemy camp for food and other valuables. Ancient soldiers had to provide their own food. So the temptation of turning aside from the fight to gain the spoils of victory was a real one. Instead of this, Saul waited and then told every soldier, Saul wanted every soldier to press on with the fight unceasingly and destroy the enemy completely. If this was Saul's intent, then his oath was foolishly harsh, both in forbidding the soldiers from eating and in binding them with a vow. This did not make any sense. They should have eaten, become nourished, and then fought with more vengeance against the enemies of Israel. Matthew Henry adds this. He says that Saul's oath was first impolitic, then imperious, and finally impious. Notice what he says. The oath was impolitic for it... It gained time, it lost strength for the pursuit. It was imperious, for to forbid them to feast would have been commendable, but to forbid them so much as to taste, so ever so hungry, is barbarous. Finally, it was impious to enforce the prohibition with a curse and an oath. He had no penalty less than an anathema wherewith to support his military discipline. End quote. Again, flexing his muscles, didn't want the enemy to regain any kind of strength, so he kept his people starving so that he can still pursue his enemies. But this would be their downfall. 
And it was for this reason that Israel, the men of his army, were hard-pressed that day. Now, the severity of this executive order, and that's what it was, became a demoralizing force which infected the entire army. Whenever there is an executive order, a mandate of any kind from any public official, if it is not in line with the word of God and for the benefit of the people, it becomes demoralizing. And that affects the entirety of the people. If Saul wanted to spur his army forth for a complete victory, he was actually doing the exact opposite simply because he was flexing his muscles and that blinded the man. His pride was blinding him. And this was nothing more than the heavy-handedness of a tyrant. The Reverend Phillips again observes, he says, as a spiritual leader, Saul erred by requiring more of God's people than God himself had asked which Saul did by demanding a fast in the middle of a battle. Moreover, Saul's unbiblical requirements resulted in unintentional evils as extra-biblical requirements have a tendency to do. Let me repeat that. Whenever there is a mandate which is not biblically mandated, whether it's from an ecclesiastical magistrate, from a pastor in other words, or from a magistrate in the political realm, whenever a man desires from a people more than what God desires, it results in unintentional evils. Depression, suicide, family issues with violence in the family. We see this today. We see this all over the place. How many since COVID have we seen people going into places of of business and shooting up the place almost weekly? Why? Because this has an unintended consequence because of what was mandated outside of what God had mandated. William Blakely also notes, he says this, it was cruel for Saul to impose a fast at such a time. All the more that being commander-in-chief of the army, it was his duty to do his utmost for the comfort of the soldiers. Saul's example reminds parents, for example, that harsh and unfeeling commands, especially in the name of religious observances, merely embitter children against the parents' rule and religion. Likewise, church leaders who invent their own extra-biblical rules for conduct do more to hinder than to advance the cause of the gospel. If Saul's threat was not enough to discourage his army, God providentially brings the entire camp into the forest, again orchestrating this perfectly where there was an overabundance of, think about it, you have a starving army. There's an overabundance of mouth-watering honey dripping from the trees to the ground. And honey, the sweetness of the honey, very alluring, but also very invigorating, very healthy. And all they of the land came to a wood, and there was honey upon the ground. And when the people were come into the wood, behold, the honey dropped, it dropped onto the ground, sort of like the manna. But notice, for fear of the oath, For the fear of man, God providentially orchestrating the honey, but for fear of the oath, no man put his hand to his mouth. Now this this had to remind Israel of their own history where God had provided for the Israelites the manna, which miraculously appeared on the ground each morning, especially for their nourishment. This honey was on the ground. It was dripping supposedly from from heaven, from the trees, onto the ground. It dropped on the ground. That all a man had to do was bend down and put it to his mouth and be nourished. He could continue the fight. But they were afraid of Saul. 
Even Moses encouraged Israel that they were going to enter into land flowing with milk and honey. They should have understood their own history. They should have recognized that God is providing for us. Yeah, Saul is saying no, but God is saying yes. Saul should have realized that God was providing his army with the means to rejuvenate themselves. And yet in his blindness and for his, in his, in his thirst for self-vindication against his enemies, not God's enemies, his enemies, the Philistines, he missed it. And so even though God is providing this nourishment, the soldiers refuse to eat for fear of Saul's wrath. This is a typical response of those that are ignorant of God's working and fearful of man's threatenings. What this shows us is that by this time, Saul's power had increased to the point where the people, you think about this, the people were willing to starve rather than disobey Saul's tyrannical decree. They were willing to wreck their own health simply because the state had mandated it. Sound familiar? Christians in time past were willing and are still willing to compromise their spiritual health by not attending church or by allowing the state to close the church. When the state mandates something, they say, we shall do it, even if God has commanded that they should not do what the state commands. Now what is also noteworthy is that as Saul's tyrannical power increased, so does, it seem at least, his religious observances. Oh, I, you ever hear people, or even in Congress, oh, we've been praying. We have reprobate Congress people telling us that they are right with God when they are doing exactly what is opposite of what God teaches. So as Saul's tyrannical power increases, he's trying to legitimize it by keeping religious observances. And for whatever reason, Saul seems to be bent upon making an impression that he is a God-fearing man, thinking that if he uses religiosity, people say, oh, this must be from the hand of God. So when you hear Congress people saying, oh, we prayed about this and we're, we're God-fearing people, oh, this must be God's sanction. No, it's not if it's not in the Word of God. If we know it's not, we need to say it's not. We cannot allow these people to be these charlatans claiming to be God-fearing individuals. Unfortunately, Israel was not ready to charge Saul, at least not yet. So Saul seems to be bent on making an impression that he's a, a God-fearing man when the opposite is actually the reality. We see this all over. We see this in government. We see this in the churches. We see it everywhere. As concerning governments, on the one hand, they like to parade and they love to parade how religious they are and how prayerful they are. Well, at the very same time, they legislate the murder of children, the liberation of criminals, and the oppression of the righteous. And by using religious language and ritual and a call for national prayer, I mean, whenever these, these oh, it just drives me crazy, whenever they call for national prayer, well, let's pray, let's pray now that the towers have come down and we're all going to do a little kumbaya. It just drives me crazy because they're hypocrites. They, they try to cover their hypocritical wickedness in the same way that Saul and so many in government do, even those in the pulpits today, in order to lull the people into a false sense of security and trust, that they have a connection with God. Show me you have a connection with God, and I'll believe you have a connection with God by your righteousness. Saul's army needed what Saul would not give them, what he was unable or, and unwilling to give them. Saul's army needed to eat and that honey was exactly what they needed to eat. And as we shall see, there's a gospel message here. 
Honey is always used in scripture as a symbol of the word of God or the gospel itself or entering into a land that's flowing with milk and honey. The eating of it is associated with the new birth and the enlightenment of the spirit of man. Notice what the psalmist says. David, in Psalm 19, perhaps even reflecting upon this horrible situation that Saul brought his army into, perhaps even reflecting upon this, he says this, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More than to be desired are they than gold, yea, much more than fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. And then in 119.103, How sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. So honey is a great picture of the word of God. So in, in a very real way, he's actually withholding the nourishment of the word of God and the gospel of God's spirit from the men of Israel by this curse, by this oath. And since it is the word of God that refreshes the soul, typified by honey, to withhold it is to withhold life. And that's what the state has done in our modern time. They have sought to withhold the word of life from God's people in order to be as God. They did not want the church to go and worship the true God because they wanted to be God. And if we apply this lesson to our modern times, we see how so many tyrannical governments prohibit the worship of God in the same way as Saul is prohibiting the eating of this honey. In many of these tyrannical nations, any mention of the gospel, let alone the active worship of the true God, is met with death in the same way as Saul would meet anyone that violated his prohibition with death. Within the community of the apostate church, this is an especially difficult problem. Whenever the true gospel is withheld from the people, just like Saul's army, the people faint because of the famine. Now, there's a very interesting nuance here. The state doesn't have to shut the churches down to starve the people. All they need to do is put reprobate hypocrites in the pulpits to give them a different gospel. Then they can starve the people that way. That's what they did during the times of Charles II, that's what they did during the times of Hitler. Take over the church, you starve the people from the truth of the gospel. Because the gospel contends with wickedness. The gospel doesn't just say, oh gee, I wish God would come and save us out of this and, and rapture us out of this. No, no, no. The gospel contends with the Philistines. The gospel contends with wickedness. And it's the duty of the church to contend with wickedness. So whenever the true gospel is withheld from the people, the people faint because they are famished. Enter Jonathan, who hath not heard of the prohibition of his father as yet. So, naturally, he's the hero, he's the warrior, he's hungry, he just fought a valiant battle, even putting himself in the face of the Philistines almost to see if they would, they would take the bait, which they did, and he sees the honey. Notice, but Jonathan had not heard when his father charged the people with the oath. Wherefore he put forth the end of the rod, very natural, that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth. And notice what it says. It could have stopped there. It didn't. It said, and his eyes were enlightened. This was a natural response to the end of the battle, to take the honey and eat. He had fought valiantly. He was victorious. This was his reward. 
But notice how the scripture is saying, his eyes, once he ate, they were enlightened. He was able then to see clearly the situation that his father had been putting into the mix in the nation of Israel. He especially was able to assess the tactics of his father and he was not well pleased. And it is evident that God has now augmented Jonathan's work by giving him the honey. Jonathan is then told what his father had commanded in verse 28. Then answered one of the people and said, Thy father straightly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man that eateth any food this day. And the people were faint. And without missing a beat, because his eyes were open, he didn't say, Gee, gee, my father said that, hmm, I don't know. Well, maybe, I, I don't know, maybe that was the right thing. Gee, I don't know. No, his eyes were open because he ate of the word of God. He ate of the honeycomb. He knew immediately that this was wrong. That's what we need. We need to know immediately when a law is passed that's wrong, when a dictate is passed that's wrong, when somebody does something that's wrong, we have to know immediately. And we can only know immediately if our eyes have been enlightened. So without missing a beat, Jonathan assesses his father's actions for what it is, and he knows it to be folly. Then said Jonathan, my father had troubled the land. Notice, not only the army, but he troubled the entire land. There was a curse on the land. The whole nation was now under the curse because it had the head of the nation as a reprobate man, and that curse trickled down until there would be a righteous leader. So I can tell you this, as long as we have unrighteous leaders in our land, our land is cursed. It doesn't mean that every community is cursed, it doesn't mean that every county is cursed, or every city. But those cities that are following the dictates of the head, they will bear the yoke of God's chastisement. So notice... My father had troubled the land. See, I pray you how mine eyes have been enlightened because I tasted a little of this honey. How much more? Notice, he's now, he's now putting this out. He's thinking beyond just himself. How much more? Wouldn't it have been better? Now this is the, this is the comment of a true leader. A man who is concerned about his people, his army. How much more? If haply the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies, which they found, they should have been allowed to take the spoil. They should have been allowed to be nourished. They should not have been starved. We would have been more victorious. For had there not been now a much greater slaughter among the Philistines. You see, if Saul was thinking properly, if he was thinking biblically, and let the people eat of the spoil, which was customary, they needed to eat, they would have had a greater, a greater victory. How much greater would Christendom have today if every pulpit was giving the people the unadulterated, true word of God? How much greater would our victory be today instead of hiding in the hills and in the holes? How much greater would our victory be against the Philistines? Saul had not only troubled a nation, he had troubled the entire land. And that is what sin does. It defrauds not only the people, but the land. And now the land was cursed. Despite the weakened state, however, of of the Israeli army, they continue to battle against the Philistines. So famished, they smote the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon, and the people were very faint. I'm surprised that we don't see the numbers that were killed, being so starved as they were. So by now, the army is that much more famished and they're ready to ravage the food spoils. You cannot keep an army famished. 
So, not being properly nourished, they fly upon the spoil. And there's a gospel message here as well. Without feeding on the word of God, you cannot mortify sin. You will, you will go and you will be out of control, just like these men were out of control. Without feeding on the word of God, you cannot desire what is right or what is wrong. You'll do anything because you're starving. So, the people go out and they kill and eat because they're ill-equipped for the battle that they're engaged in. So they eat without consideration of the dietary laws, eating the meat with the blood, which is, as Saul, just I'm sure he just loved to point this out, was a direct violation of God's law. Now hearing this, Saul sanctimoniously charges the people with sin. What a hypocrite. This could have been avoided if Saul would allow the army to nurse themselves with the honey. Then they told Saul, saying, Behold, the people sin against the Lord, and that they eat with the blood. And he said, Ye have transgressed. Roll a great stone unto me this day. And this is the height of his hypocrisy. If he was a humble man, he would have perhaps said, Oh, it's all my fault. No. He refuses to take any blame for his army's action, but instead calls for an altar to be built in order to atone for the people's sin. And Saul, verse 35, built an altar unto the Lord. The same was the first altar that he built unto the Lord. And here Saul makes another critical mistake. He presumes that he can erect an altar when it was the official duty of the prophet to do so. And once again, he acts as the prophet, the priest, even though he thought he was still the legitimate king, in the same way that he did when he impatiently refused to wait for Samuel to make the sacrifice. So he's doing things unlawfully throughout and yet charging the people with sin. He presumes that he can do whatever he wants to do. So he makes an altar to consecrate the army. And Saul is now, once again, invigorated to take the battle to the Philistines in verse 36. And Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and spoil them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And notice what they say. Do whatsoever seemeth good unto thee. That was what they kept saying. They wanted to honor their king. You could do whatever you think is right. You could do whatever you think is right. Whatever you think is right, we'll go along with it. So he now is determined to attack the Philistines by night, but he does not first inquire of God until the priest makes the recommendation. He's full bent on doing whatever he wants instead of consulting with the priest first, with consulting with God. Then said the priest, and I would even, I would even add this, Perhaps said, wait a minute, wait a minute, let's, let's, hey, I'm still here. You know, I'm, I'm the representative. Let's draw near unto God before we do this thing. Adam Clark makes this astute observation. He says, it is evident that Ahia doubted the priest, by the way, doubted the propriety of pursuing the Philistines that night. And as a reverse of fortune might be ruinous after such a victory, he wished to have specific direction from the Lord. Isn't that a great idea? Oh my goodness, I I can't believe it. It's such a great idea. But how many of us, how many of us go headlong into things that we think we should do because we figured it out? You know, I prayed about it. Uh, I felt this was the right thing. You know, I got to go with my gut kind of thing. And we don't inquire after the Lord. We do it all the time. We do it all the time. This is what has to stop. This is why we expound the scriptures and we look at Saul and here's the problem. When we look at Saul, we say, what a knucklehead. What what a horrible man. 
I'm so glad I'm not like Saul. I'm so glad that I know better. Well, why is God then telling us this if we know better? Because we don't know better. And here's the lesson. The priest had to step in and say, I, I, I'm a servant of God. I'm a scholar of the, the scriptures and you've got to talk to God about this first. Why didn't Saul want God's input? Because he didn't want his input if it was against his own will. He wanted God to agree with him, but he was afraid because intuitively he knew God wouldn't agree with him. So he didn't ask for God's input. He just wanted to do whatever he wanted to do. Again, Adam Clark, it is evident that Ahia doubted the propriety of pursuing the Philistines that night. And as a reverse of fortune might be ruinous after such a victory, he wished to have specific direction from the Lord. Thankfully, the priest steps up. So having been directed by the priest, Saul then, I would even say, hesitantly, we don't read that, but maybe, Saul asked God's counsel, but to his discouragement and disappointment, he receives no response from the Lord. We see this in verse 37. Saul asked counsel of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Wilt thou deliver them into the hand of Israel? But he answered him, not that day. Now, when Saul didn't receive any answer from God, he perceives that there was something amiss with the army. Now, interestingly, he thought something of the army was a problem. That something's wrong in my congregation. But he didn't look to his own actions as, as what really triggered the problem with the army. He never looked to himself. You know, it's so easy to say, oh, that person there, and that person over there, and that person over there, instead of looking over here to me. Is it me? When Christ was betrayed and he said, Tonight, someone will betray me who sits here at the table with me. All the apostles, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, they all said, is it I? They all said, is it I? But the one who it was, finally, the last one, Judas, said, is it I? He was the last one to say it. He should have been the first one because he knew he was the one. Saul was the problem. He didn't want to admit it, but he was the problem. And so, thinking that the problem's out there, he begins to search for the issue. Consider once again Saul's folly and rashness of his oath. He's doubling down on his stupidity. That's just amazing. He says, don't eat any honey, otherwise the one who does, I'm going to kill. Then he doubles down and says, even though it be in Jonathan my son, even though it's Jonathan, even it's my son, why did he say it? Because he never thought it would be a son. He thought that his son would go lock, step, and barrel with him just like the others. Even though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people that answered him. They were still being oppressed. No one wanted to say, what? I would say, what? Are you out of your mind? If it's Jonathan, you're going to kill your son? Are you nuts? No one said anything yet. And this was his rashness. So, willing to call out the sinner, he calls for the casting of lots. He sets himself and Jonathan on one side and the rest of the people on the other, confident that he and Jonathan will be exonerated. 
by the Lord when the lot is cast. But to his surprise and obvious dismay, the people are exonerated and God calls out Saul and Jonathan. They cast lots. Saul and Jonathan are taken. All the people escaped. And what is interesting here is that Saul obviously pictures himself as the modern Joshua who called for lots to identify Achan as Israel's transgressor. And isn't just like a man of prideful countenance who would say, I'm just like Joshua. I'm going to call for lots. I'm going to do exactly what Joshua did. And I'm going to vindicate myself. I'm going to save Israel from the curse of God. And we're going to destroy Jonathan. But Saul is no Joshua. He's a counterfeit Joshua. And maybe he even knew it. And now in a bind, he must save face. So they cast lots, and Jonathan is taken. Then Saul says to Jonathan, Tell me what thou hast done. And Jonathan told him and said, I did taste a little bit of honey with the end of the rod that was in mine hand, and lo, I must die. I think there should be a question here. And Saul answered and said, God do so, and more also, for thou shalt surely die, Jonathan. In order to save his own honor, in light of a foolhardy oath, Saul is willing to kill the champion of Israel, Jonathan. Now having, I guess at this point, the people standing by in absolute astonishment, finally wake up. But until this time, they were saying, whatever you want to do, whatever you do, it's fine with us. But now they were standing up for what is just and right. That is important. There has to be a time when things get so bad, so ridiculous, that the people of God finally have to say, it is enough. It is enough. We will not allow it. And the people said unto Saul, shall Jonathan die who hath wrought this great salvation in Israel? You want to destroy the church of Jesus Christ? The only thing, the only foundation that keeps any semblance of a moral and ethical lifestyle? You want to get rid of the church? You want to shut it down? You want to destroy it? You want to charge the Christians with being rebels against the uh, patriotism? What will you have when the church is silent? But you will have what Noah had in his day where the wickedness of man was so great on the earth that it would have to be destroyed. Saul is willing to kill his righteous son Jonathan for no reason whatsoever. So the people rescued Jonathan that day that he died not. That was righteous resistance against their pagan king who had been systematically showing himself unable to lead the people in righteousness and obedience to God. Again, Adam Clark weighs in. He says, Here was a righteous and impartial jury who brought in a verdict according to the evidence. No man should die but for a breach of the law of God. You see, Saul's oath was not the law of God. It was not a capital offense to eat honey. And yet he was making himself as God to say, It's a capital offense to eat that honey. He was standing in the place of God. That's what wicked people do. So, they said, but Jonathan had not broken any law of God. Therefore, Jonathan should not die. And because he should not, therefore he shall not. When a ruler mandates a law that is not according to the law of God, it must be resisted. The people seem here to be willing to go so far, no further, when it comes to the killing of righteous Jonathan. While Jonathan acted in God's behalf, Saul acted in his own. So having now been frustrated 
in executing Jonathan. You see, he was willing to do that. He was willing to kill his own son just to show himself a righteous man, a, a lawful man. So Saul momentarily leaves off his assault on the Philistines, but as we have determined before, not for the glory of God, but for his own justification, where he wages war against Ammon, Edom, uh, the kings of Zobah, even the Philistines. We see this in verses 46 and 47. This was a man who was bent on conquering everything. And then in verse 48, And he gathered in host and smote the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hand of them that spoiled them. So he was bent on on warring against everyone. But despite Saul's hampered leadership and compromised character, God prospers him, at least over his enemies. But there's something to be said about Saul's military campaigns. Because he wanted to conquer all of these nations, his campaign, his mindset, was imperialistic in scope. He wanted an empire. He wanted an empire built upon his military prowess. Saul was initially, however, called only by the people to deliver Israel from the Philistines. We don't read anywhere that any other nation was fighting against Israel but the Philistines. But he wants to go out and declare war against everyone in order to be an imperialistic warring chieftain. Nothing was said from God about the other nations. In fact, at this time, we're not even sure if these other nations were even a threat to Israel. But in Saul's mind, he wanted it all. Now, whenever there is a despotic king in power, he will seek to establish an imperial empire. Israel was, however, not to be an empire. There were to be a constitutional republic based upon God's covenant law, making it a theonomic theocracy. Saul was establishing a universal realm for himself based on military might. Israel was to become, under Saul, a warfare state. Now in verses 49 and 50, God introduces us to Saul's sons and daughters as if to say that Saul had a dynasty in mind. That was the problem. All of these men who were all about themselves, they wanted their own dynasty to continue. And that would, in his mind, hopefully, would continue throughout his many generations. So he has his two daughters. He wants to marry them into, into a godly line so he can maintain his dynasty. But sadly, there would be no peace, nor would there be any comprehensive victory over the Philistines while Saul was in power. And this is fleshed out in the final verse. And there was sore war against the Philistines all the days of Saul. When you have a warfaring state, you will always have war. That is what keeps the people under the thumb of the despot. He was embroiled in perpetual war, which is what all imperialistic empires face. Now, bent on victory, not for God, but for his self-justification, Saul, in keeping with Samuel's warning, takes all of the young men, because he needs more and more and more, doesn't he, for his military campaign, implying that he does so by conscription. Samuel then appears once again to instruct Saul as to his next military escapade. And we will examine that next when we move into chapter 15 in the series Dynasty Lordship and Authority, our exposition on the first book of Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of His grace. Amen.